Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Count It All Joy. All right, so for the next 12 weeks or so, I have the distinct privilege of taking you through one of the most beloved uh, books in the entire New Testament, and that is the epistle of James. And so by way of intro, I wanna answer three questions, okay? Number one, I wanna answer the question, who is the author of the letter? Number two, I wanna answer the question, who is the audience that received this letter? And then number three, I wanna answer the question, what is the argument of the letter? Okay, and so author, audience, argument. First of all, who's the author? Well, there's four men in the New Testament, at least, that are called James, but scholars have narrowed it down to one man. So if you're taking notes, here we go. The author of the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus, who became the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church. And so after Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, Joseph and Mary consummated their marriage and they had a number of children, boys and girls. The boys are listed in the Gospels. It's James, the author of this letter we're gonna study for the next three months, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, the author of the little tiny one chapter epistle right before Revelation. The girls are not named, but in Mark chapter six, verse three, uh, Mary and Joseph's daughters are called Jesus Sisters, plural. So four brothers, at least two sisters. We know that Jesus had at least six younger half-siblings and they were all raised in a carpenter's home in the little village of Nazareth. Now, can you imagine growing up with the Messiah as your big brother? Think about that for a second. I mean, how many of you guys have, some big, have, have big brothers? Let me see your hands. Can you imagine if that big brother was the Messiah? You know, try to put yourself in James Sandals here. And so talk about a hard act to follow. I can hear the four little brothers complaining to Mary and Joseph. You know, mom, dad, how come Jesus never gets in trouble? Oh yeah, it's because he's so perfect, right? And so I wonder if these four guys, these four younger half siblings, actually became resentful of their big brother as they got older. I think so. And the reason I think so is because in the Gospels, after Jesus and his brothers all grew up to adulthood, there is definitely a strained relationship between Jesus and his brothers. John chapter seven, verse five, says that they, his brothers, did not believe he was the Messiah. And in Mark chapter three, verse 21, it tells us that some of them, some of his little brothers, and or sisters said that he was insane. Our big brother's crazy, he thinks he's the Messiah, right? That's recorded in the Gospels, but in between the Gospels and Acts, everything changes. In Acts chapter one, we see Jesus' mother and his little brothers, and they're gathered in an upper room and they're praying. And so the question is, what in the world happened between the Gospels and Acts to change James? What happened to change his brothers? And the answer to that question is the resurrection of their big brother. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse seven, it says that James, the author of the book we're gonna study the next three months, that he saw the risen Christ. 
Can you believe this? He saw his big brother alive from the dead in an immortal body, of course, with the scars in his hands and in his side. And I wonder, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I, I wish, maybe someday we'll see the movie, but I wish we could see the, the private meeting between the risen Christ and his little brother James. It's kind of like, do you believe in me now, little brother, right? You know, get over here, I've showed, shared this with you before. Get over here, Jesus grabs him, gives him a noogie, right? I'm alive, I'm alive, do you believe now? And of course he believed, James got saved. And James grew like crazy and eventually he becomes the lead pastor of the mega church in Jerusalem, which we've already studied back when we studied Acts. And so from that position of authority, he writes this inspired letter. All right, so to whom did James write? Who's the audience? Well, it was written to Jewish believers. And by the way, that date is not for certain. Really good, solid, Bible-believing scholars disagree on when it was written. We think James was martyred for the faith around AD 62, but that's just the best guess we can come up with, believing that he wrote the epistle before the Jerusalem council convened. And so at the end of verse one, it says that he is writing to the quote, 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now think about that phrase, 12 tribes in the dispersion. Who are the 12 tribes? Yeah, the, the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, right? And so the 12 tribes in the dispersion refers to Jewish believers in Jesus, those Jews who accepted Jesus as their Messiah and had been dispersed all over the Roman Empire. And so you need to know that this letter that we're gonna study is thoroughly Jewish. Three reasons that we know that. Number one, there's over 40 references to the Old Testament in the five chapters of James. Over 40 references to the Old Testament. Number two, it refers to the readers of James meeting in a synagogue. In James chapter two, verse two, your version probably translates, translates it assembly, but that word, the Greek word for assembly is the same word used throughout the New Testament for the synagogue. And then number three, it was written by a Jew to a group of scattered Jews. But here's what I want you to get. Even though this letter was written to first century Jewish believers, you need to know that God, the Holy Spirit, has used James to touch the hearts of millions of Gentile believers for the last 20 centuries. My prayer over the next three months is that God would use these five chapters, that he would use the book of James, that the Holy Spirit would move around in this room and in the, your living rooms who are watching right now, and that he would touch your heart and encourage your heart and speak life into your heart and give you godly wisdom through something that James says as we go verse by verse. So what's the argument or theme of James? Well, it's simple. We must have faith that can be seen by good works. That's the argument, that's the theme of the letter. What I love about James is his emphasis, this is not a theological book, right? This is not Romans. This is James, it's called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And so what I love about James is his emphasis on practical Christian living. 
And some people think I'm direct. I am nothing compared to James. James, in his very direct, no-nonsense style, encourages believers, right? He's encouraging us, those of us in this room right now. This is not just an intellectual study. This is something that's gotta go from our head to our heart to our feet. We, we gotta be changed, ladies and gentlemen, by the teaching and living out of the word of God. And so James encourages us, he encourages you, not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk, to have a faith that's not dead, that's not dormant, that's not disguised, but have a faith that's alive and it's active and it's apparent to others. Everybody sees that you have faith before you even say anything because of what you do and because of what I do. That's James. James tells us to have a faith that works. All right, so that's the brief introduction. We're gonna dive now into the text. And so right now, if you're looking at James chapter one, verse one, please say amen. amen. All right, so here we go. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the, dis- in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, you see that? When <laughs> you meet trials, of various kinds, okay? So the word count here means consider, and the word trials is referring to trouble. So let's read verse two again. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet troubles of various kinds. And so in the very opening words of the letter, you and I are faced with a radical statement. Here's the radical statement. That when we encounter, not if, but when we encounter the trials and troubles and tribulations of life, we need to consider it all joy. And I know some people are thinking, wait a minute, hold on, pastor. James is telling us that when we encounter trials, we should be happy about it? Happy? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. And somebody says, well, how can I be happy when I'm hurting? Here's how. You can be, I can be happy when we're hurting if we have the hope found in verses three and four. Now, this is really gonna help you if you listen, that you have ears to hear and hearts to receive, and again, feet to live out what he's saying here, but it's gonna be tough. So, so look at verses three and four. We'll start again in two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let or allow or stop fighting God, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Hey, church family, have you noticed something? Life is filled with trials. Life is filled with trouble. Life is filled with difficulty, but the good news is that as believers, we can have hope that God is at work through our trials. And so let's flesh it out a little bit. Life is filled with trials. We get laid off, we struggle financially, we get sick, we get injured, we lose a loved one, a friend stabs us in the back or betrays us, a kid rebels against God and against us and against our authority. We're misunderstood, we're mistreated, 
We're criticized for no good reason. Life is filled with trouble. Life hurts. We're not home yet. This is not the kingdom of God on earth, right? We're not home yet. And so instead of running from that, we need to face it with courage. Life hurts, but as believers, we can have hope. Now, it's not the cultural hope so hope. You know, you ever hear that? You know, I hope this happens. I hope that doesn't happen. That is not the meaning of the New Testament word hope at all. I'm not talking about a hope so hope. I'm talking about a no so hope. I'm talking about a biblical hope, a certainty that God is at work through our trials. And that leads to the big idea of the message today. And that is if we hold on to hope in the midst of our trials, we can have joy in the midst of our pain. I just wanna leave that up there for a second so you can write it down, take a picture of it, something, but, but man, we gotta internalize this truth right here. If we hold on to hope, listen, if you lose hope, you're in trouble. But if we hold on to hope in the midst of our trials, we can have joy in the midst of our pain. How can we be happy when we're hurting? Here's how. Because we know God is at work through our trial and he's getting ready to do something awesome. Did you hear that? I really appreciate five people saying amen today. So guys, guys, are you with me this morning? All right, how can you have hope when you're hurting? Here's how you can have hope when you're hurting. You can understand, you can know that God is at work through your trial and he's getting ready to do something awesome in your life. Amen. It's like childbirth, right? Childbirth hurts. The labor pains are intense, I know. <laughs> Not because I've ever experienced it, but I was there. I was there when my wife gave birth to our second daughter without the epidural. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? My goodness, it was tough. I tried to help her, we took Lamaze, I was trying to get her to breathe through it all. Honey, it's gonna be okay, get away from me, right? Or no, <laughs> Stacy did not do that. Stacy would never do that, no matter how much pain she's in. But here, here's what I noticed during that time. When the contractions were off the chart, my wife had this, this hope Deep inside, when the pain was through the roof, no epidural, she had this hope, she had this expectancy, she had this joy that through all the pain, God's gonna bring someone beautiful into our lives. And he did. Her name is Amanda Joy, AKA Mandy, our second daughter. And my wife would tell you, she's worth all the pain. And so it's the same with, with us when we encounter the trials of life. Do trials hurt? Yes. They hurt like crazy. And so don't deny your emotions, right? Let the emotions flow. It's not healthy to stuff down your emotions. Trials hurt. It's difficult. It hurts like crazy, right? But because we have hope that God's at work through our trials and he's getting ready to bring about something beautiful through our pain, we, like James says, we can actually consider it all joy. The joy is in the hope 
that God's at work, that God is sovereign, that God's gonna do something beautiful in our lives. And so what are the purposes of trials? There's three that I wanna highlight from the text today. Number one, if you're taking notes, the purpose of trials is that God is testing our faith. When you accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, guess what? You became a child of God. You belong to him. He's your daddy, and you got to let him have his way. He's testing our faith. I want you to look again at verse two. All right, count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the, what's the next four words? There it is, in black and white, inspired by the Holy Spirit. That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let, allow, stop fighting God, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so through trials, God is testing. That word testing means proving our faith. And I was writing the message this week, it made me think of Job. It says, Job, uh, Job said in Job uh, 23.10, quote, you guys know this, right? He knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. He knows the way that I take. Aren't you glad you got a daddy in heaven who knows the way that you take? He cares. He knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Now, if you don't know the book of Job, you gotta read it, especially the first three chapters. But listen, Job went through fiery trial after fiery trial after fiery trial. But Job, this is what I love about Job. This guy was determined that no matter how hot it got, he was gonna make it through the trial without misrepresenting or dishonoring God. Job's Intention was to show that no matter how hard it got, he would not turn away from God and he would not turn away from God's commands. We have such a shallow faith in America. So many Christians, the first time something happens, they're ready to run out the door of the church and never come back and turn away from God and go live like the world and go live like the devil. Listen, you're a fake believer if that's what you do. Job was not a fake believer, he was a genuine believer because if he was a fake believer, I know this, that as soon as he lost all his possessions and as soon as he lost his kids and as soon as he lost his health, he had sores breaking out from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. If he was a fake believer, he would have taken the advice of his wife. You guys remember what his wife said? Curse God and die, honey. How would you like to have a spouse like that? Curse God and die as you sit on the ash heap and scrape your sores with a broken piece of pottery. Talk about encouraging your spouse, wow. And if he was a fake believer, he would have taken her advice, but he was a true believer, and so he's like, I'm gonna get through this. I'm gonna come through like gold. Now, I'm sure that the fiery trials in Job's life, God used them to burn away some of the impurities in Job's life. So what are the purposes of trials? Number one, God is testing our faith, but number two, God is purifying us. He's purifying us. Again, Job 23.10, he knows the way that I take when he has tested me, here it is, I shall come forth like gold. And so question, how does the goldsmith purify gold? 
fire, right? Intense heat, why? To burn away the dross, to burn away the cheap impurities. One of my favorite commentators who's with the Lord in heaven right now, another solid guy like Tony Evans, his name is Warren Wearsby. I like the older guys, by the way. He says that it has been said that the Eastern goldsmith kept the metal in the furnace until he could, look at this, see his face reflected in it. Wow. So our Lord keeps us in the furnace of suffering until we reflect the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. We have so many impurities in our lives. And I'm not saying that any of you have any of these sin issues, but I'm just gonna name some of the sins of fallen humanity, pride, hatred, bigotry, racism, jealousy, resentment, lust, division, enmity, strife, fear, worry, doubt. That's why Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it, right? So that's the bad news. The good news is this, we have a heavenly goldsmith who loves us even though we're sinners. He loves you so much, he loves me so much. And so he's at work through our fiery trials and he's burning away the impurities in our life. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that God would remove this thorn in the flesh. Whatever this infirmity was, God, please remove it. God, please remove it. God, please remove it. No, no, no. Why? Because Paul had a pride issue in his life. God was using the thorn in the flesh to burn away the pride. And so how long, someone says, will he keep us in the furnace? If you're with me, say amen here. How long will he keep you in the furnace? until he can see his face reflected in your life. And so before God is gonna do a work through you, he's gotta do a work in you. And sometimes that's suffering. Not all the time, but sometimes. And so what are the purposes of our trials? Number three, God is maturing us. That word perfect, let's go ahead and read it. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that word perfect, don't let it fool you, it's not sinless perfection. I love John Wesley, but I don't agree with him on this point. It's not sinless perfection. There's no way you can attain sinless perfection or I on this side of the grave. It's referring to spiritual maturity, full spiritual maturity. And so God wants all of us to grow up. He wants me to grow up, he wants you to grow up, but that takes time, okay? Physically speaking, nobody goes from being a child to being an adult overnight, right? And so spiritually speaking, nobody comes, goes from being a babe in Christ to a fully spiritually mature person overnight. It takes time and it takes trouble. Everybody say time. Everybody say trouble. That's the recipe for spiritual maturity. Joseph had to endure about 13 years of difficulty after difficulty and trial after trial before he became Egypt's number two in command, the prime minister, and God used him to save Egypt and the surrounding nations from a famine. Moses had to spend 40 years on the backside of a desert as a nobody 
watching his father-in-law's sheep before he was ready to be Israel's leader and lead the children of God away from the house of slavery. David, scholars believe, had to run from Saul from cave to cave and wilderness to wilderness and place to place, running, 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 for some, some scholars believe up to 10 years before he was ready to reign in Israel and Judah and to, to lift Israel and Judah up politically and spiritually. What are you saying? I'm saying it takes a lot of trouble and it takes a lot of time. Trouble, trouble, difficulty, problems, issues, trials. Am I depressing anybody yet? Right, this is not the message you hear in so many health, wealth, and prosperity churches in America, but this is Bible truth, straight from verse by verse, the word of God. Time and trouble. But before we stomp our feet and say, God, it's hot. God, that's enough. God, I can't take anymore. God, why are you doing this? Where's God? We start believing the lies of the devil. God doesn't love you. God's no longer ever anywhere near you. You might as well just curse God and die. That's the devil talking. Don't listen to the voice of the devil. And before you stop your feet and, 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 and have a hissy fit and say, God, I'm done with you or whatever, you gotta read verse four again. Look at verse four. And everybody shout out the next word, go. Let, everybody say let. 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 Allow. Stop, thank you. Praise the Lord. <laughs> start them when they're young. Let God have his way. Stop stomping your feet. Stop having a problem with God. He's sovereign. He's in control. His hand is on that dial, the furnace. Satan's hand's not on that dial. Satan has no power over you. You're under the blood, but God is maturing you. He's growing you up, and you gotta let God have his way. Let him have his way. It takes time. It takes trouble. When we get to home to heaven, everything's gonna be perfect and fine forever and ever and ever. So let's just man up, woman up, whatever you wanna say, right now in this life, let's take it and be courageous and live for Jesus Christ, come what may. Let God have his way. I'm just gonna read verses five through eight, make some concluding comments, and we'll be done with today. So please look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, by the way, that's me. Will anyone agree and say, that's me too, pastor? Man, and just watch the news. We need some wisdom right now, godly wisdom. And I'm so sad that so many people, you know, they, they believe in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and CNN, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Fox News. They know CNN or Fox News and the narratives, depending on their political agenda, better than they know the Gospels. Shame on us. Shame on us that we watch the news every night, hour after hour, and we get all mad, take our sides, and get angry, and we start demonizing the opponent who has a different political pers persuasion than we do and we become unlike Jesus, and we're violating the Sermon on the Mount because we're not speaking the truth in love and humility and seeking to understand before we are understood. I'm not saying stop watching the news. What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is stop watching the news so much every night that you go to, go to bed angry. Be a follower of Jesus Christ. Read Matthews chapter five, six, and seven before you go to bed and live like him. And I'm saying that because you know what's happening in the next five months, and we will not 
We will not be distracted in this church. We will focus on the kingdom of God all the way through November, December, and next year. None of that was in the notes, by the way. I don't even know where I'm at right now. Oh yeah, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him, what's the next three words? That's important. Ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, so when life gets hard and the trials are being experienced, we need godly wisdom. But when we ask for wisdom, we gotta ask in faith without doubting. In other words, we gotta really believe that God is for us and not against us. We gotta really believe that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. We gotta really believe that he will never leave us or forsake us. God wants to give us wisdom. We don't believe the lies of the enemy again that God's up here and he's holding wisdom and he's just like got a snarl on his face and he's not gonna give it to you unless you know that you just fast for 40 days and 40 nights and beat yourself with a rock. No, God is your daddy. He loves you. He wants to give you wisdom, but you gotta ask in faith. See, what often occurs in trials is this. There's a trial, and it's hard, and because it's hard, we begin to doubt God. We begin to doubt his promises. Like a wave of the sea, we're wavering between faith and doubt, faith and doubt. I believe, I don't believe. I trust God's promises, I don't trust God's promises. We start focusing on the trial, and then we become double-minded. Sometimes I believe God, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm like Christ, sometimes I'm like the world. And then we become unstable in all our ways. Listen, this is what happened to Peter. At 3 a.m., Jesus, you know the story, comes walking out on the water in the Sea of Galilee, winds howling. They're like, it's a ghost, freaking out. Be of good cheer, it's, it's me, don't be afraid. That's what God's saying to some of you in your trial right now. Don't be afraid. I love you. I'm with you. Peter's like, Lord, if that's you, tell me to come. Well, come on. Peter gets out of the boat. The water feels like concrete. He's filled with faith. He's focused on Christ. He begins to walk to the Lord. But you know what happens? The wind starts to gust, and he's distracted. And now he's thinking about the water hitting him and the wind that's blowing. Jesus, storm. Jesus, storm. He's double-minded, unstable, and he begins to sink. Lord, save me! What does Jesus do? Just drown, you idiot. Is that what he said? No, that's not God. He grabs him. He grabs you. He lifts you up and lovingly says, and I quote, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so when we have trials, how should we respond? Last point. We have a trial, it's hard, it hurts, it's horrible. But we determine to have faith alone. No fear, no worry, no doubt. You say, Pastor, you're living in a dreamland. No, listen, I know there is fear, worry, and doubt, but you resist it. 
You fight against fear. You fight against worry. You fight against doubt. This is spiritual warfare. We're not home yet. It's not comfortable. And you put your faith in Christ and his promises and become single-minded. What does that mean? Jesus is the answer, always. Him and him alone. And what does that do? It brings stability into your life. And you actually, metaphorically speaking, start to walk on water. What does that mean? You begin to live the victorious Christian life. And so it's not like this. How many Christians are like this? <laughs> right? That's not how it is. It's, it's, it's like this. See, I don't know if you can, can tell, but my hand is going up a little bit. See, and every once in a while, yeah. But God is at work. He is sovereign. Listen to this. He loves you. He's getting ready to do something wonderful in your life. Let him have his way, amen?